We're going to finish up this little series we've been doing on God the Son. And for those of you who are new to our conversation and kind of visiting and checking us out or haven't been here for a while, um, I want to kind of get you up to speed on the the roadmap of where we've been. Um, We're going through common questions or what I've been calling tough questions that people in our Oikos often ask us about our faith. And um, as we do that, we're doing it with an eye toward trying to be equipped so that we can answer those questions for people in our Oikos, but also answering them for ourselves. Sometimes we have questions that we're struggling with, and we want to have better reasons for the hope that is in us. And then we're also um, intermittently in all of these conversations kind of talking about tactical issues of what's the practical kind of nuts and bolts of how do I get into a conversation with an unbeliever? How do I do that? And so we'll, we had a few of those um, in the fall and we'll do a few more in about March ish um, looking like on my calendar. So we've been talking about what is Christianity. We talked about the Trinity as being the real, um, kind of hub of what it means, the distinctive feature of what it means to be a Christian is that we believe in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so we talked about God the Father. We've been in the middle of a conversation on God the Son, and we're going to wrap that up today. There's many, many more topics we could talk about about God the Son, obviously. Um, I'm considering and and, uh, talking to the Lord about what our topic will be for next year. Maybe we'll do something on the Gospels. Um, we'll see what the Lord has to say about that. But um, so don't don't feel like this is this is the totality of things that could be said about God the Son. Many many more things could be said, as it says at the end of uh, John. But um, this is then we'll be moving on next week to four or five weeks on the Bible. Where do we get the Bible? How do we know that the Bible um, the, the the Bible we have today is the same? Bible that the apostles wrote, uh, many questions that our culture has about our holy book and whether or not it is a reliable and accurate account of the words and works of Jesus. Okay, and so that's going to be kind of pushing into that conversation in the the coming weeks. And then we'll have, again, some tactical conversations. Maybe I'll do a few more interviews. I'm trying to get some more interviews lined up uh, like I did last fall. And then we'll talk about some issues related to God, the Holy Spirit, in connection with church and church life. Uh, we're going to talk about why are there so many uh, different uh, church denominations. That's always a big question that comes up. We're going to talk about life in the church and some, some big questions that our culture is asking us about what it means to be a Christian. Okay, So that's kind of the big picture to get us through about the middle of May. Uh, when we'll wrap up this portion of our adventure together, all right? So um, always feel free to give me feedback, and uh, I always look forward to hearing uh, what's working for you and what what isn't working for you. And so today, uh, we're going to be talking about the question, was Jesus a real historical person? And believe it or not, this is a very large question in our culture right now. Um, here's a couple of, they call these, uh, for, for those of us who are a little older, uh, my teenager had to teach me how to say this word. They're called memes. 
They're not Mimi's. It's spelled M-E-M-E. They're, they're pronounced memes. I think you have to be about 17-ish to know this information. This is, this is the valuable information that we're bringing you in the foundations class. And um, so these are called memes. They're the little pictures, and then they have text on them. And so I just Googled on the Internet, like, memes about the historical Jesus. I chose these two because I think that these are very indicative of our culture and the kinds of statements that are being made in our culture about Jesus. And the first one is the most mythical man in the world. I don't always perform miracles, but when I do, I leave zero evidence. That is a very common belief in our culture about Jesus. So what if there is no... What, so what if there's no exi- evidence of my existence at all? You just got to have faith, bro. Right? So this is how our culture, especially people that are in the emerging generation, are being exposed to concepts about the historical Jesus. Uh, if I wanted to spend two or three weeks on this conversation, I would have played some clips from a documentary called Zeitgeist, if you want to go on YouTube and really frustrate yourself. It is uh, a a documentary that's been on YouTube for a few years now, but it represents the kind of ideas that people in the emerging generation are being exposed to about Jesus. So if you really want to understand what does the average kind of 25 and under, maybe 35 and under year old think about Jesus... You go on YouTube, Google Zeitgeist documentary, and you will find out how they think and what they have been exposed to. And it's basically um, some ideas that are reflected in these memes. That Jesus is this mythical person. That there's no evidence that he ever actually really existed. That the Bible is a mythical account of what happened and the thoughts of Jesus' followers hundreds of years after the fact. So what started out as kind of a legendary figure eventually mushroomed over time into what we have today as being the Bible. Just as we are zealous and we will call ourselves evangelists for our faith, we want to share our faith, these people are uh, neo-atheists and they are zealous to share their non-belief in God. And they do active recruiting. You can like take online classes and how to be an evangelist as uh, a, a, a new atheist. The History Channel uh, way of thinking about Jesus is the evidence for Jesus is on par with the evidence for King Arthur. You will often hear this um, soundbite in many documentaries. And so you, we want to think about the question... Uh, what is the evident historical evidence for Jesus? So here's some very common statements we might hear in our culture. Uh, there's not a shred of evidence that Jesus ever existed. I didn't make these up. I got these off of actual places. The Gospels are all hearsay. It's hearsay testimony. It's like playing that game as a child of a telephone. Or in Britain, they call it Chinese whispers, where you say one thing and then you... T- you whisper that to a friend, and then you whisper that to a friend, and then it gets to the end of the line, and it's sort of this funny, distorted thing that was totally different than it was at the beginning. That is the, the quintessential icon 
of how the new atheists present the Bible to young people. Is that is what it is. It is the result of Chinese whispers. It is all hearsay. Uh, the life of Jesus is the invention or the evolution of his followers centuries after the fact. And that is <clears throat> the critical part of that statement, centuries after the fact. So some weeks ago, I asked you to look up these passages. And if you can consider in the recesses of your mind um, that exercise, if, if any of you did that, um, we're going to look at a couple Right now, so let's see. Um, Mr. Ron, would you mind grabbing Acts 1? Uh, Yolanda, would you do Acts 2.32? Hartley, will you do the Second Peter passage? Brian, do First uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. So, Ron, go ahead with the first, the first one there, Acts 1. So, one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Okay, so what they're talking about replacing Judas as the apostle. What is the critical uh, job criteria that's needed there, Ron? What is? That's right. He had to be an eyewitness of his resurrection and of his life. Okay, uh... Yolanda, do you have X2? Awesome. Okay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Very good. So here again, what is the theme is we are what? Witnesses. Eyewitnesses, right? Okay, uh, Laura. Um, 2 Peter 1, 16-17. Yeah. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Very good. So there again we have the theme of what? Eyewitnesses. And he says right at the beginning, I love how he says it, We did not invent cleverly devised tales. Okay, so now that is an assertion. It is not a conclusion. Right? So we could say, the, the apostles are at least asserting that they are eyewitnesses, not people giving hearsay centuries later after the fact. This is their assertion. Now, the question is, is how well is that going to be proven? And that will be a conversation we'll be having in the coming weeks. But we don't want to mistake an assertion with a conclusion. But they are making the claim that the Bible is made up of eyewitness testimony from people who saw it themselves that is not hearsay centuries later after the fact. Okay, Brian, read First uh, John 1. one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Very good. So Jesus is that word of life. And notice the empirical language there. That which we have, what? Seen, seen with our eyes. We have heard with our ears, and that we have touched. This is an empirical account. It is an account based on five sense experiences that they had with Jesus. And Jesus was making all kinds of interesting and very bold claims to be God himself, as we looked at in in weeks past, okay? The theme that all of these passages have in common is that of being eyewitness accounts to Jesus. This is the clear 
and the repeated teaching of the New Testament, that these are eyewitness accounts. So when atheists come to us and say, um, the New Testament is just all hearsay, written centuries after the fact, that is an assertion, not in a conclusion. Are you with me? We are making a different assertion. So then we have to evaluate which assertion has the best case, the best evidence, the cumulative case for that. So they often will make these statements and they'll, they'll frame it as if it is a conclusion. And it's, no, that is an assertion, but it is a different assertion than what the New Testament itself makes. So we have to be clear um, to d differentiate that. I don't know why, but when I talk to new atheists, they almost seem like they have never actually read the New Testament and are completely unfamiliar with the claims of what the New Testament is actually claiming to be. Now, we can have a conversation about which view is falsifiable, which view has more evidence. That's a different conversation. But the clear assertion of the New Testament is that it is, was written and it is recorded as eyewitness accounts. Are we clear about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to now put forth a few arguments about the historical Jesus <coughs> along these lines. Sources behind the New Testament were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Now, why does this whole business about eyewitnesses matter? Why is this important? When we go out and we're in a conversation with someone in our oikos and they say, oh, there's no evidence for Jesus. He never lived. Prove it. Okay. And then you're kind of like, well, of course there is. I've never, this is a very odd position. How can they be saying this? <laughs> but this is, uh, if you have anyone under the age of 35 in your oikos, this is going to be more than likely an idea that is in the back of their mind. The New Testament, again, repeatedly claims to be a series of books that preserves eyewitness accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Eyewitness accounts were a critical component of a book being given serious consideration as Holy Scripture. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the question of the canon. And that is the question of how did, who selected the books in this, who collected this? Who put these together and said, this is scripture? And left out these other books and said, these are not. Right? This is a big question in our culture. Because remember, people that are in the millennials and Generation Z come at life from a naturally skeptical perspective. You cannot tell them, and you cannot tell these people in your oikos, well, just have faith, this is what it is. You've got to have something a little bit more behind the reason for the hope that is in you than just take it by faith. Yeah. But you're mentioning his background. I have a neighbor um, who was in Germany in World War II. So he's 80, 85 now. For years and years, he's always arguing about the visual. You're talking about seeing. He's argues to me that if Jesus is real, why doesn't he appear right here so I can see him right, right. now? Yeah. This is this is a very important point. I'm glad you're bringing that up because I always tell the skeptic, you know, that's a very thoughtful question, and in fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. He did appear. He did come in the flesh. 
people saw him, they interacted with him, they touched him, they heard him, they ate with him. And so that is where I bring up John chapter 20. Because that was Thomas's, and I taught through that some time ago, is that Jesus has a way of meeting those people. And I would encourage him, just start reading the Bible. This is God's encounter with you. And see what he does. If he's a, if he's a true seeker, and he starts reading scripture, trust me, Jesus will meet him. Because the, the Bible is supernatural. If it's just a story, or it's, it's what I call a cover story, or a front, then, you know, the Lord will work with them on that. But this is, this meets that objection. I would, that's exactly what the Bible is. It is a historical account of eyewitnesses. Okay, let's push forward to the more exciting part of this lesson. Sources outside of Christianity provide compelling information about Jesus. This might be new for some of you. Um, that there are actually extra biblical sources outside of scripture that mention Jesus. And from that, we can begin to put together a portrait of who this Jesus was. Now, these extra biblical sources are non-Christian sources. So um, these are often writers who had no motivation to write about Jesus unless he actually existed. These are many of them are Roman historians. They're not Christians. They're not believers. They don't have that agenda. Um, so we only have time to look at a, a very select number. If you want to find out more about this, I recommend the book, The Historical Jesus, Gary Habermas. But he does a nice job of chronicling the extra biblical material about Jesus. So we're just going to look at a few of these today, just so that we can get an idea of these selections. Okay, the first one we're going to look at is Cornelius Tacitus. Very fine first name. This is what I wanted to name. Our, uh, if we had a son, I wanted to name him Cornelius. My husband was not as fond of that, and it was a big sigh of relief that it was a girl. So Cornelius was the name of uh, the uh, first Gentile convert. It's also the name of my grandfather, who I admire greatly. Tacitus lived. Here's his dates. Uh, a little bit after Jesus was when he was born, but uh, second half of the first century. He's a Roman senator who writes a history of the Roman Empire called the Annals in around 115 A.D. And he describes, he's the one where we really get a good description of what happened when uh, Nero tried to blame Christians for the fire in Rome in 64 A.D., I'm going to read through this, and what I want you to do is, as I read through it, I want you to underline or write in the margin what facts we learn from reading this account, and then we're going to make a catalog of those facts, okay? So if you see a fact, you can underline it, or you can just write it to the side. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, or as uh, 
Jim used to say Pontius Pilatus. And most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment against, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed on crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. What facts do we learn about Jesus and early Christianity from, from this? Persecution. Persecution. Persecution to death. Right? Christians. They were called Christians. Very good. Right. And their founder... Okay, so this is very important because we have this name of Tiberius and Pilate. What does that tell us? Time frame. They, you know, they didn't say 1972, but this was the, basically the functional equivalent of giving us a time frame of when this happened. And what do we know from the, the New Testament, from the Gospels? This, these same names pop up, don't they? It, it lines up perfectly. Okay, what are some other um, facts, pieces of data, as I like to call them? Okay. Christians were arrested. Very good. So we have a location. And where did it start? In Judea. And then it goes to Rome. Well, how does that fit with the Bible? It's a perfect fit, right? Starts in Judea, the book of Acts. Once Paul uh, reaches Rome, that's, that's the end of the book of Acts. We have Nero sees this as some sort of threat, doesn't he? It was not a small movement. It must have been significant enough that it threatened the very emperor himself that he felt like, I need to get rid of this. Okay, so here's some facts that I came up with. We got most of them. Uh, Christians were named for their founder, Christus, which is Latin for Christ. He was put to death uh, by the Roman curator. Uh, He died during the reign of Tiberius. Uh, Oh, this is an important one, is this use of the word superstition. The superstition, it kind of connotes that it had some sort of religious quality to it. But it ended for a time, but it broke out again. Judea is where it had its origins. Its followers carried the doctrine to Rome. 
Uh, Nero blamed the Christians. They were hated. They were arrested. They were convicted. And Christians were tortured and nailed to crosses. We, got, we pretty much got everything. That's good. All right, let's go on to Suetonius. He's a little later. He's the chief secretary under the emperor Hadrian. So he had access to imperial records of the Caesars. And he uh, is giving an account under the reign of Claudius, uh, events under the reign of Claudius, uh, which was 41 to 54 AD. And there were some large riots that broke out in the Jewish community in Rome in 49 AD. Now, what religion does Christianity come out of? Judaism. And for the first couple of decades, the Romans didn't quite understand the difference between Judaism and Christianity. You know, this is, a, this is an internal doctrinal debate. And from the Romans' point of view, they're like, look, figure out your theology and just pay your taxes. You know, knock it off. Stop fighting. But for the Jews, what was this? This was a heresy. This was the threatened the, the very stability of their religion. And for them, Christianity was not just some offshoot of Judaism. It was, it was a threat to their very way of life and their, uh, it would be the end of their religion. It was some other separate thing that needed to be put down, put out, and gotten rid of. So we're going to read a little quote here from Suetonius talks about the riots that are mentioned actually in the book of Acts. He says, because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them, he meaning, meaning Claudius, expelled them from the city. And then he also recounts later on in Nero's reign, after the great fire at Rome, punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious belief. So we have here more punishments, just kind of a confirmation of, of this point. Uh, the Jews at Rome were, they caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. So here's another mention of Christ. Claudius expelled the Christians from Rome, and this is a um, correlates with Acts chapter 18, verse 2. Uh, Jews were banished from Rome. Christ is seen as uh, causing the Jews to make an uproar. They were tortured by Nero. They were described as having mischievous beliefs, and the term Christians was used to identify followers. All right, let's go on to Pliny the Younger. I've got to stay on track with my time here. Another historian, a Roman official who is known for his hundreds of surviving letters to noble, notable people in the Roman Empire, um, he gives some correspond. He has correspondence with the Emperor Trajan, and reporting on activities of early Christians. Uh, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. They sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ, as to a. God. That's interesting. They, and they bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word or deny a trust when they should be called upon 
to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but a food of an ordinary and innocent kind. So this is sort of an interesting account. So what facts do we learn about the early Christians here? Yeah, they met early in the morning on a fixed day. Now, he doesn't tell us what day that is, but why would they meet early in the morning before it was light on a fixed day? What does that sound like? The resurrection, right? The resurrection of Jesus happened right before early in the morning. On the first day of the week. So it's, this is kind of an, an oblique re- reference, I think, to them meeting on Sunday, on the f- first day of the Jewish week. What was their view of Christ? Huh? They were trying to, they were, they were known as, uh, shall we say, virtuous people. They had a reputation of being virtuous people. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like many of the commands that the Apostle Paul gives in the epistles about how Christians ought to order their life, right? All right, what else? Okay, and what did they, how did they view Christ? Yeah, well, that's fascinating. So here are these people that are coming out of the Jewish religion, and in Judaism... You're not allowed to worship people. Are you with me? (laughs) This is a very interesting description of what these early Christians were doing. They were worshiping Christ as a God and singing songs to him. Blasphemy from a Jewish point of view. Even from a Roman point of view. They followed the ethical teachings of Jesus. Uh, possibly a reference to the love feast of early Christians, how they ate together, how they gathered for food, possible reference to worship on Sunday. Okay, other points in the letter, um, pre-dawn service, singing hymns. All right, the Talmud. The Talmud is Jewish teachings. And this is after, this is developed after the destruction of the temple. Jewish scholars took steps to preserve their religion after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And part of that was writing down many of the the teachings and common practices of the day. And that was recorded in the Talmud. So there is this interesting excerpt in the Talmud. Let's read that. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu, which is the Jewish name for Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. So this is sort of a Jewish point of view of what happened to Jesus. What are some interesting facts that we learn about here from a Jewish point of view? What were his charges? 
Sorcery. Well, what does that sound like? Witchcraft. Well, what does Jesus say? You know, they're, they're accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the enemy. You know, that there was witchcraft. It was Satan. That was how he was able to cast out these demons. How was he able to do these miracles? I think the sorcery that they're referring to there is the casting out of demons, the, the healings, the resurrections. And then what is his other uh, charge against him? Apostasy. Well, what would be his apostasy? Claiming, yeah, that's a problem. Claiming to be the son of God. Claiming to be God. Accepting worship. Those are all things we've talked about in in previous weeks. These charges are are fascinating to me. And um, we have a confirmation of his name. We have a confirmation of the time that it was near Passover. That correlates with scripture. Now, this uh, Josephus quote that I've included here is very controversial. So make that a note of it in your, in your notes. I'm including it here because it often comes up, but I want to let you know that it's very controversial because most scholars think that this was inserted by Christians later. Whether or not that's true is debated. Is there any There is some, and it's in. It was too complicated for me to get into that here. But in Habermas's book, he discusses that. Yeah, Josephus was a uh, Jewish historian, and here's a, a passage that is in Josephus, but it is disputed, and we're going to read it. At this time, there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days later after his resurrection, that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, that's a very powerful quote, isn't it? You can see why it's disputed, because it's almost too perfect as a summary of the Christian view of who Jesus was. So there is, I'm just letting you know, there is some debate about whether or not this was added by Christians later or whether this is authentic to Josephus. There are arguments on both sides. That'd be something fun for me to maybe email Jim about. He's, he's such a bigger research hound than I am. Yeah, and I'd be curious what he thinks of this passage. Because Josephus, by and large, is looked at as being a very reliable source for historically. But this one passage is very disputed. And there are some arguments on both sides. Let's talk about kind of the picture that we start getting of who this Jesus was from extra-biblical sources. Well, first of all, is there evidence that he existed? Yeah. And there's evidence that he has followers. Right? And that his followers tried to emulate his behavior. His followers um, gather together and they worship him as God every week. They sing hymns to him. Uh, he was condemned for sorcery and the founder of a superstition, superstitious religion. 
This is all starting to sound a little bit like Jesus. That he died under the reign of Tiberius. He was put to death by Pontius Pilatus. Uh... The claim that atheists make that there is no evidence for Jesus has to make sense of this data, in my opinion. Because this is coming within decades after Jesus. And the effect happens right away. It, the, the Christianity gets to Rome within a couple of decades. And it is so disruptive that they want to begin to put these people to death. It is seen as an offshoot or a disruption within the Jewish religion. This is all consistent with what we've been told our whole lives about what Christianity is and who Jesus is. So when somebody makes an assertion that there is no evidence that Jesus ever existed and that the Bible is just hearsay centuries after the fact, must, I think, begin to make sense of this data. It must begin to figure out, okay, if that assertion is true, how are you going to handle this body of data? See, my position, my assertion works fine within this body of data. I can make sense of this. From an atheist point of view, I'm not sure it works so well. But let's say you're still a skeptic. Now I'm going to give you another way of coming at this. You're still a skeptic. Yeah, we don't, yeah. I'm not even going down the postmodern path, Mr. Mr. Hatch. So what, this is called the minimalist argument. What are the minimal claims about Jesus that almost all scholars agree on, even the liberal ones? So we're just going to use the most liberal assertions that we can. We're going to find some liberal scholars. We get them all in a room. What is it that at least the liberals all agree on about Jesus? This is Gary Habermas's minimal flat facts argument. That Jesus died by crucifixion. That is something that even liberal scholars will affirm. That he was buried, that his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. The tomb was empty. Now, this is a contested fact as to what the implication of this is, what happened to the body, whether it was stolen, whether it was eaten by dogs. But there is wide agreement that the tomb was empty. The disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. The disciples believed that they encountered Jesus. And what happened to them? They were no longer the meek and mild fishermen. The disciples were transformed from doubters to what I call bold proclaimers to death. Now, this is a very important point. Because if you were a, a Jewish fisherman living at the outskirts of the Roman Empire, and you're just afraid of how am I going to get my next enough money to pay my taxes, and I'm just grinding out a living here in the fishing department... Why in the world do you start running around the Jewish countryside proclaiming that some guy rose from the dead if you don't seriously believe that he did rise from the dead? Something happened. 
And whatever the theory is that the atheist puts forth or the skeptic or the teenager who's watched a YouTube video, how do they make sense of these lives being transformed? You don't go around getting your head chopped off for something you know is a lie. That's not how that works. Okay? <clears throat> these disciples, something happened, even the most liberal scholars will tell you, if you read their books, those disciples, something happened to them. They believed that they encountered the risen Jesus. Now, the, the, the most liberal scholars will say, well, they believed that, but maybe it was hallucination. Maybe they were mentally ill. Maybe, you know, they took some bad drugs. Uh, there's some other explanation for it. But even that, to be willing to die for that seems unrealistic to me. The resurrection is the central message of Christianity from the beginning. The whole thing is about Jesus rising from the dead. And we've talked before in here about 1 Corinthians 15 and how that is the, the critical explanation of the gospel is that it was eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And from the beginning, Christianity is the religion that is founded on the idea that there was this man, Jesus, who walked the Judean countryside and performed miracles. He died on a cross and he rose from the dead. And there were people who saw him, touched him, heard him after he rose from the dead. And whatever your view is about Jesus, you have got to make sense of that minimal data. You have to. They preached the message of Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. The church was born and it grew. Orthodox Jews who believed in Christ made Sunday their primary day of worship. Imagine you are an Orthodox Jew. You have been raised in Judaism your whole life and all of a sudden you're going to switch your holy day. Something happened. James was converted to faith. James was the brother of Jesus when he saw the resurrected Jesus. He was the family skeptic. Something happened. And again, we're talking about the minimal facts that even liberal scholars agree on. Paul was converted to the faith. Paul was an outsider. He was a skeptic. So if you want to read more about that in the historical Jesus, Gary Habermas's fine book, uh, elaborates this argument. Okay, now we're going to do an even fewer minimal facts. Okay, you're, you're a real super-duper-looper skeptic. Okay? <laughs> Fact number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Fact number two is the disciples had experiences they believed were appearances of the risen Lord, which was number five above. Number th Fact three is the disciples were transformed. Fact four is that Paul came to Christ. We've been talking a little bit off and on about abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning is reasoning to the best explanation. This is what detectives use, you know, forensic detectives, when they're trying to solve a crime. This abductive reasoning. You're, you're taking a set of facts. We've been talking a lot today about facts. And then you try to reason to the best explanation. And the two hypotheses we presented today was there is no evidence for Jesus and the New Testament is a result of um, hearsay written hundreds of years after the fact.
The second hypothesis that we put forward is that the New Testament is, is the accounts of eyewitnesses and puts uh, it is, and we're going to talk in future weeks about the time frame of when it's written, but I'm going to submit that it was written within decades of the resurrection of Christ. Reasoning to the best explanation, we ha- must have a theory that can adequately explain all of these facts. If the gospel writers are found to be reliable, then we can reasonably accept their statements as the foundation for future decisions we make about Jesus' life and God's existence. And this is what I want to kind of leave you with today, is to think about um, the, the word reasonable. When I'm talking to someone who's a skeptic or has a lot of questions, I don't try to get them to absolute proof. I just try to have a minimal conversation of, is it at least reasonable to think about Jesus being a real historical person? These other non-Christian sources affirm who he is. They affirm some minimal facts about him, his ministry, his early followers. Is it at least reasonable to think about Christianity as being, um, as we see it today, coming from this set of facts? I don't try to persuade people. That's, we're going to talk in future weeks about the difference between um, proof and persuasion. It, there's, those are slightly different things. And so I, I look at that as, as really something that is the Holy Spirit's job in that situation. My job is to, as it says in Peter, to present reason for the hope that is within me. And that's what we've tried to do today. It's just a basic minimal facts approach. To reason. I hope you can do that. Just even if you ha- remember like one thing from this is they've got to explain the transformation of the life of the disciples. How did they go from these kind of backwoods fishermen to preachers? How did that happen? And I think just to piggyback off that, is it true that sometimes people will die for a lie? It is absolutely true. But the difference in this situation that when people bring that up is that I say... But those disciples knew the truth. They would have known if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They would have known what happened there. And for people to know the truth and then die for a lie seems highly unlikely. It seems much more likely that if they knew that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they would have just gone home and been fishermen and had a nice, quiet life. Well, considering the fact that they were hiding... Here are the Jews yeah. before the resurrection. These were not uh, bold people. <laughs> All right, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you for sending your son, Jesus. You have not left us without a testimony, without a witness. Your followers, Jesus, They did not follow cleverly devised tales about you. But they were eyewitnesses of your majesty. And we thank you for how those are written down and preserved for us today. And we thank you, Father, for the courage of the martyrs who came before us. That is the blood of your people on which our church stands. It is the blood of the martyrs that it provides so much of the security of our faith. And we thank you for these brave men and women who gave their lives 
so that we could have assurance that we are walking in truth. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for superintending and working with these these righteous men to preserve this record for us today, for us to read and to be transformed, words to live by every day. Oh, Father, give us courage. Help us to have the courage of the, of the early apostles that we know that we can um, bring hope in our world and that our faith is solid and that we can uh, just be confident when we're in those shaky moments of those Oikos conversations um, with our family and friends and, and we're feeling timid, that we can remember this moment that you have provided um, eyewitnesses of, of these things and have written these things down and we can be confident in your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.